I'd invite you to go ahead and pull out your bulletin. We have some sermon notes, if that's something that might be helpful to you. And open to the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verse 16. If you're a football fan, you will know this reference well. You may not know the verse well, but it's certainly um, at football games as we see it. If I ask this question, what is on your list, depending on your age, you might be thinking a Amazon list, or you might be thinking a piece of paper with pen or pencil written on it around this time of year. I don't know if you are categorized as one of those difficult to buy for people, but most of the time there's someone on our list that's just kind of hard to buy for, and this may not be you, but I think two of the hardest people to buy for are those who don't want anything and those who have everything, right? So the uber content and the uber materialistic are really, really hard to buy for because people who just see what they want and just buy it, there's nothing left to put on a list. And those who are like, I really don't know. I have everything I need. Come on, come up with something. Those are the difficult people to buy for. I don't know if you are old enough to remember pulling out catalogs But for me, right around Thanksgiving time, we would go to our pantry. My mom is sitting in the crowd this morning, and she can attest to this. And we would pull out these thick magazines that the rest of the year were used to boost us up at the dinner table uh, on special occasions. And we would lay on the family room floor and open up JCPenney and Sears and Emporium catalogs, and we would begin to make our list. It's kind of comical because it was a challenge. You had to dutifully write the little like eight-digit code next to the item. Remember that? There was like a code as if your parents couldn't figure out what the item was. Man, I was really careful to make sure I got every one of those digits on there and wrote out my list. We remember that then and now all ads have this common goal, right? It's to spend more. So no matter how they come at you with that, that's the messaging of advertising. Not wrong, it's just good to be aware of. I saw this, you know, 80s wish list, and it's almost like an 80s materialistic nativity scene, right? I mean, look at it. It's kind of, it's kind of wild. You've got the star up top. You've got, you know, you've got animals present that are meekly sitting there studying the, the little baby in the very center of things. And it's almost like the caption could be, yay, the gift of life, a baby. Now let's worship by buying stuff in this catalog toll free and written right on there on these catalogs. It's fantastic. You can order anytime with this newfangled technology called the telephone and you would dial, right? And you could just order with those little eight digit codes. How about this one? This one says, love your dad with a little something from Sears. That's sort of the undercurrent of the message. Um, Sometimes you just abandon all sense of subtlety at all. This one for Eastridge said, give mom a hug. And then it says, and a gift. Uh, Because we all know that moms like hugs, but what she really wants is some more stuff. I mean, that's sort of the, again, sort of undercurrent of this. And this season, as a church, we are saying this. No, we see hugs as Gifts. That's what we're talking about with Advent Conspiracy. That's what we are moving toward. So, if gift-giving is hard for those who have it all, think about this for a second. What do you give to the one who made it all? If Christmas is indeed a birthday party for Jesus, what is it that we could possibly give to the guest of honor? It turns out, he has made it known to us. 
fact, he wrote it down. He made a list for us. Uh, last week was all about spending less, not for the purpose of building up your savings account or saving for a rainy day, all of which may be prudent. The Proverbs give us plenty of instruction that way. But intentionally spending less on Christmas so that you can have more to give away, more of your time, more of yourself, more of your finances. So this week uh, has to do with giving more as an act of worship. If you know anything about Jesus Christ, you know that worship has everything to do with how we actually live, what our actual actions are, not simply what we believe. Worship has everything to do with our actions, not simply just what we believe. If last week I meddled, this week I risk offending. Once again, I'm going to let Jesus do the offending. I'm going to let Jesus be the one speaking. I will be the messenger. But I want to throw this out. That giving more has parameters. In in other words, it matters how you give more, not just that you give more. Let me read from you. I know you're in John, but let me read from you from Matthew 7, Jesus talking. And he says this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I, Jesus, Lord of the universe, will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Did you catch that? This is saying bluntly and plainly that you can be giving more and be a worker of lawlessness at the same time. You can give more and be a worker of lawlessness all at the same time. Recall from last week that this is a season where we are to spur one another on to love and good deeds. And you'll remember also there's nothing mushy or um, sort of sentimental or feel-good about spurs, right? Spurs have sharp points to them. So there may be stabs of conscience. There may be stabs uh, of, of, of your intention even moving forward. And what I would implore you this morning is this. Just be open to what God is saying to, to, to you. You can throw out all the rest of the superfluous stuff that I might say. But cling to what God's word says and be open and say, God, I'm open to change how we celebrate your birthday. Now, that said, much like last week where we talked about spending less and I did not have to go outside of the church family for examples of this, you are in for a great deal of encouragement. There are many in our midst. There is much giving more in a very, I believe, God-honoring way that is occurring in this church Family. So we're going to take stock of some of that, um, and you're going to get pumped up, and we're going to say, let's lean even more into that. Let's ask by the grace of God that we press forward in that and not rest on our laurels. All right, so John 3.16 is where you should be. If you want to write one thing down this morning, write down this one sentence. In response to the greatest love, we mimic Jesus by giving more of ourselves in love. So as we talk about giving more in this Advent conspiracy scheme, this is what we're saying. In response to the greatest love, we mimic Jesus by giving more of ourselves in love. 
The more you study and think on communion, the more brilliant it is. In all of its simplicity, what we just did was we enacted, we actually all participated in Emmanuel, God with us. In fact, in taking a little piece of cracker and drinking a little bit of juice, we, we actually, we actually are, just, are just sort of embodying, we're living out this process of Christ in us, the hope of glory that once in us, we can't extract from us, we can't separate out from us. It's a powerful thing. So let's look at our passage this morning, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave. Pause. It is the great love of God that pursues us. It's God who initiates love. It's God who created love. And it's God that sustains love. And what is the love of God prompt? It prompts giving. God so loved that he gave. We're made in the image of God. So I think this is where our instinct to say, I love you. I want to give you something. God loves and so he gave. We're made in God's image. So we love and so we want to give. It wells up in us. One of the things we talked about really distinctly last week, which we won't spend much time on, is this. I don't want you to hear or feel any guilt in gift giving. That's not what this is about. It's just saying, let's, let's make sure that we're not bought into the culture and just sort of streams of messages that are sent to us. Let's make sure that we're centered on Christ. Actually, to give a gift to someone else as an expression of love is, is godlike. We see that from the very foundation of the world. So God so loved the world that he gave. And what does God give? Read on. His only son. If you're new to Christianity, God is God the Father, God the Son, Jesus Christ, and God the Spirit. It's called the Trinity, and it's this doctrine that we'll study and sort of marvel at and think on. It's unmistakable in the scriptures, and yet we'll never fully understand it. But here's why I'm bringing up the Trinity this morning is this. In sending his only Son, catch this, God is giving himself to us. In sending Jesus Christ, three distinct and yet one, God is giving himself to us. So God so loved that he gave. What does he give? He gives his only son. Jesus told Philip really plainly, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. We give more in response to love. We imitate as God's beloved Children. So when we think of giving more, we are giving more as God gave more. Any and all talk of giving more starts and orbits around this truth. And I want to pause for a moment before we go any further, um, because one of the great misunderstandings about Christianity throughout history, and certainly today, the average person on the street, if you were to ask them about this, often gets this wrong. It's a reversal of this absolute paramount truth found in John 3.16. Here's the paramount truth. We give more in response to God's giving. It's that God initiates love with us, not that we initiate giving or love to God. God gives, we receive. God acts, we benefit. Isn't this the essence of grace? That's what grace is all about. That's what we sing about. That's what, as Christians, we come, literally we come and party about that every Sunday. That's what we're doing here, is celebrating this great truth. 
Now, if you live your life out in reverse of this, everything flips on its head. So a message like this will come off as sounding like this. Give more. You better give more. And then here's what can sort of stir in our hearts. It can stir up pride. If we think we're giving plenty and certainly more than the person sitting next to us, doesn't that lead to pride? I'm giving more. Preach it. Preach it. More need to give more like me. That's pride. It can also be uh, that, that that kind of message leads to a ton of stress. Give more. If you're really a thinker, then you go, how much more? Like, how much is enough? I mean, how far do we take this? Who is my neighbor? And it leads to stress going, I better really keep track of this because I'm not ever sure of this. So some of you are prideful, potentially, if this were the message that we're trying to live out in the flesh. Some of you would be led to being stress cases about this. And the third category is this. Some of us in this room trying to live this truth out in reverse that we somehow give to God so that we get from God is it would lead to utter despair. Here's why. We know we don't give enough. We know we're not going to give more. You know why? Because we lived with ourselves yesterday and the week before and we know that any such giving would never tilt the scales in our favor. We continue to rack up debt. I mean, just by not doing the stuff we we know we should do and feel kind of guilty about, we're racking up more and more debt. So this leads to pride, it leads to stress, or it leads to despair. If you flip this thing on its head and try to somehow come clean to God, give to God. Think about this. People hijack St. Nicholas, and it turns grace into law. Right? Right? You better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why. Law, not grace, is coming to town. He sees you when you're sleeping. I mean, it repeats the refrain. You better watch out. He knows. And it's sort of these godlike traits. And it's like, that's a cute little song, and it's said with lots of cheer. But it's a total law message. That whole message is a law-based message. That's where the human heart goes with things. People hijack God, and they turn him into Jesus Claus. Right? Making a list. No need to check it twice. I hope you've done enough for eternal life. Right? I mean, we we basically take the message of Christianity that, again, I don't think could be any more explicit. And we take it and we just flip it into what looks an awful lot like law living rather than grace. There's nothing merry about that. So, I don't want to move on with giving more because I do not want to preach a be more moralistic message. If you are hearing that this morning, come talk to me after. We'll figure out where I took a wrong turn or you took a wrong turn in listening, and we'll set that straight, okay? If you don't live out the reversal of that truth, but just live out the created order, which is we are always the beneficiaries of God, 
What do we possibly give back to God that he hasn't first given to us? And we just walk in the beauty of that. There's a lot of power to giving more. Everything falls into place. Giving finds its rightful place of worship rather than payment. I promise you, giving more this Christmas as an act of worship rather than a form of payment, there's a lot of merit to be found in that. There's a lot of joy and peace on earth to serve from that place. Doing more springs from a place of childlike imitation rather than stressed out servants seeking to avoid punishment. If you look at next week, next week is love all. And if you kind of see where this whole thing is going, we think that's very, very biblical, by the way. Love all reveals that we better get this motivation for giving more right, or else we're going to run out very, very quickly. Here's why. If, if the mandate is to love all, and we don't source this in God, we'll love those who are like us, although truth be told, not as good as we could. We will tolerate those who are somewhat like us, And we will openly be suspicious and deriding of those who are not like us. This is one of the sad climates of our culture right now. Just look at the political climate. I've done a lot. I love history. I didn't like it in in high school, which is a bummer because I could have gotten better grades. But now I love it. No one grades me on it. But if you look through history, it's not that we're in such a different time that it's just so polarized. It's been polarized for a long time. But there is an open mocking. There is a ceasing, for some reason, of any kind of respectful dialogue and intentionally trying to learn and listen. This is what happens when we try to love all from our own place. We'll love our family, we'll tolerate those who are kind of like us, and we will just openly mock those who are not like us and be suspicious of them. Look at John 3.16 and look at how it goes on. The good news is something that's done and finished, but it goes on with chapter with, with verse 17. It says this, For God did not send a son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Track this world condemnation through this passage. Jesus doesn't come to condemn because people stand condemned. It's the default position of the human heart. Listen to how this reads. Verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him, believe, is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Let me say a few comments. One is that the needs in our world abound. You enter this world by default. A needy person, not just physically as a helpless baby that needs caring parents, but spiritually as a lost and wayward one who needs to be brought home. Second, we see that giving of yourself is really, really costly. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And as Rob pointed out, this baby in a manger that we celebrate, we know where this heads to because we see the other side of the cross. Thirdly, living obedient lives can change the world who models us better than Jesus Christ not my will 
but God's be done. Look at that last line. Whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Our giving more is a response and imitation of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is what it means to give in the name of Jesus. All right, let me give you a few don'ts of relational giving. Okay, these aren't sort of the end-all list. These are just some things that, that I came up with that I think might be helpful. Number one is this. Whatever you do, don't fit in. I've already seen, we just live in a very wealthy area. And so the normal, the storyline is fairly consumeristic and people look to hope in things they shouldn't look to hope in because they're temporal. So whatever you do, please do not fit in. Normal is sick. When you live out a different set of plans, it makes you stand out. Catch this, ready? Don't try to be weird. Some of you are just weird. Knock it off. Don't try to be weird. You don't have to be weird. Here's what it means. It means growing in your love for Jesus. It means growing in your prompt response as the body, the hands, the feet, the heart, the kneecaps of Jesus. When the head tells you to do something, you just do it. You grow close to Jesus and you grow closer to him over the years, you'll become weird. People will just think you an oddity. They won't know what to do with you. And that will be to the praise and glory of Jesus Christ. So we don't have to try to do this. You don't have to try to not fit in. You follow Jesus, you just will live by a different set of plans and a different set of ideals. All right, here's the second one. Don't covet or compare. These are absolute killers to the unique gift that you are to this world. Every one of you started as a cute little baby. People would just stop traffic, jump in front of traffic to save your life. You've done nothing at all. You're just a cute little baby. Over time, sometimes what happens is we begin to self-hate. We begin to know ourselves, and people don't see us. They don't want to come and pinch our cheeks. They just want to ignore us. And so, uh, and so sometimes people get to a place in their life where they don't see themselves as a unique gift that's created by God that doesn't have to do anything else except exist, and they already start as a gift. I'm here to tell you, you're a gift. Even if no one has jumped in front of traffic to save you or even noticed you in a long, long time, you're a gift. If you compare and covet, you will rob this planet of the unique gift that you are. This can be done organizationally too. This can be done with churches that seek to compare and look over at the brothers and sisters and go, we need to be more like them. And it's a homogenized nonsense thing. And it robs that church, that local expression of the unique gift and place and context that God raised them up in the first place. So do not covet. Do not compare. Keep focused on the one that you're following. Think about Peter for a second. Peter was... Peter asked Jesus a question. He got out of the boat. He's walking on the boat. What does he do? He takes his eyes off the Savior, and he looks around. He sees the waves. He realizes he's the only one out here. And so he begins to sink. There's a great little picture in John chapter 21 where Jesus says this. When, some, when one of the disciples, they act like brothers at Christmas. Well, what about him? And Jesus says this. What is that to you? You must follow me. Do not compare 
do not covet, even within the church family. All right, here's number three. Number three is don't keep it. If you are a Christian, you have had a fundamental shift in your thinking about money, time, and your very energy, your very self. You come to this realization, it's not really mine. I'm a steward of this. I'm a steward of what God has gifted me, and He has gifted me for the express purpose of gifting other people. So give it away. Don't keep it. You are not mandated to keep building barns. In fact, you're, you're commanded not to keep building bigger barns. Now, if you own a storage unit, doesn't mean you're necessarily in sin. But you may be. You may be in sin owning a storage unit. Think about that for a second. Storage managers don't ever tell you that, by the way. There's not like, like a clause that says you may be sinning by storing up more stuff. Just think about it. Uh, sometimes keeping things isn't a matter of greed, but rather a matter of laziness. Let me explain. Sometimes keeping things isn't a matter of greed. I want more stuff. It's just a matter of laziness. It's hard to give stuff away. Here's a great example of this. Where's Clink? Clink and I worked a lot of hard hours. <laughs> it's really Clink worked a lot of hard hours. I sort of went and visited him. Um, <laughs> On this neighborhood garden that we had. Remember our garden in the back? Some of you are here to remember um, this, this vision of just saying, what if we had plots of land that we could invite neighbors to, and they would, they would garden their stuff, and then we could invite those who are lower income, who couldn't afford to help pay the dues of water and upkeep, and then we would overcharge people who could afford it so that they're sponsoring someone in their neighborhood to grow their own food and vegetables. Isn't that a killer idea? It worked. It worked for a short season. It was like smaller than we envisioned. But I took great joy sitting in my office watching a family from across our street going to tend to their box as a family. They were one of those lower-income families that got to benefit making their own fresh salsa because they had a salsa box. They had tomatoes and jalapenos and cilantro and all this and peppers, all this wonderful stuff. I bring up the garden because of this. We purposed in our heart. I don't even know who came with this, but it's awesome. We purposed in our heart to say, let's, let's live on a reverse tithe of garden produce. In other words, we are going to seek to give away 90% of the produce that is harvested from our boxes and keep 10% for ourselves. Now, I've got pictures. We had amazing heads of lettuce and organic basil. I mean, just all kinds of really amazing stuff coming out of this. Can I just tell you, do you know how hard it is to give away 90% of the produce that's grown in the back of a church? It's crazy hard. I remember really distinctly having, uh, we had these little, these little tabs that, that said, you know, kind of compliments of neighborhood Bible church. It was just kind of a little greeting and, and, and all of that. But I remember like having this, um, this bunch of, I think basil is what I had. And I was at Pete's Coffee on Camden Avenue trying to end my work week. And I could not end my work week until I got rid of this basil that I'm holding. And when you walk up to people and you say, hey, um, how's it going? You don't know me, um, but this is from Neighborhood Bible Church. They do exactly what Chad's doing. They go like this. <laughs> like, what's in that bag? Are you trying to get me addicted on organic basil? So there's a lot of suspicion, right? So here I am at Pete's Coffee, and I'm praying. I just say, God, I mean, you've already worked out some really cool stories of me trying to give produce away, which no one ever taught me how to do that in seminary at all. Uh, but I'm trying to think this out, because I think that's what Jesus would have us do. <laughs> and I approached, like, I approached several people, and I got that kind of response. 
And so finally I see this couple, and it's an older couple, and I walked up to them, and I think they just felt sorry for me. I think they realized, like, this guy has a quota to make, and so they took the basil. I'm not really sure what they did with the basil, but they, they took it, um, and, and I thought, man, giving stuff away is hard. It's super difficult. It would have been so much easier to just keep the basil. It wasn't because I was greedy. It was because it's hard. It would have been much more easy to just do that. So sometimes um, giving things away is a challenge. Here's the fourth one. Don't get tired. So a pastor named Mike Slaughter. He pastors a church. And he says this. I received an email several years ago from a person unhappy with the way our Christmas services at our church focused on our work with the Sudan Project. His response really shows how distorted Christians' view of Christmas has become. Here's the email. Dear Mr. Slaughter, thank you for allowing my family to enjoy the great Christmas services at your church over the last many years. You are a gifted speaker. I greatly enjoy listening to you. We meet there as a family from all over the area. I am sorry to say that although I understand the great work that needs to be done in Darfur... And the work that you have already accomplished, I simply cannot take another African Christmas. I hope this doesn't sound harsh, but our Christmas celebration as a family is not limited to Africa year after year. So this year, we will gather in hopes of finding a new worship spot for more traditional, or more traditional to the Christmas we know. Now, can't handle another African Christmas. Just think for one second. Pause for a second. Think of how far a worshiper's heart must be veering from God, whose heart is towards those who are experiencing suffering, whose heart is towards those who are experiencing injustice. Think of how far it has gotten from God to say that we can't handle another African Christmas. I'll throw just one stat out at you. Every four seconds, a child dies of hunger-related causes. That reason is why many in this church currently sponsor one, two, sometimes more than two children and just write a check every month to say, that's not going to happen on our watch. Not with the whole world. We can't handle that. But we can handle one child. That's why many of you in this room sponsor a child. Furthermore, there are millions in our world and thousands in our county that every single day experience the poverty, not of homelessness, they have a roof over their head, but of familylessness. They are orphans and they are foster kids. And so that's why many in our church have gifted their families to these children. And that's why many more of you have come around those families and said, you are not going to do this alone. And so you are a deep support in many different ways to those who are fostering and those who are adopting. If not for the fountain of living water, the motive of worship, it's so easy to succumb to fatigue. This is why Galatians tells us, let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. You know, the real Christmas, the most traditional Christmas, is actually hard to stomach. Think about this for a second. The Holy Family took flight to Egypt. Why? Because they were trying to survive government 
initiated genocide. A practice that is still prominent on the world scene today. Jesus spent many of his formative years as, wait for it, an African refugee. You want a traditional Christmas, like, let's write a few more verses to the scene. Let's, let's keep going. Let's dive into what actually happened at Christmas time. A lot of these sentiments that we have. I don't know that Joseph and Mary, in the moment of actually living the, the days one after another, as we do as human beings, without the benefit of looking back, I don't know if they would describe it as merry, jolly, uh, peace-loving. Peace like That's not their experience in the moment. I'm going to close by illuminating what and how to give Jesus on his birthday. So what do you get for the one who made it all? That's a really valid question. And the truth is, he told us. I'm not going to give a sum total, because I don't think the scriptures have that in one spot, but let me give you an example of this. The Son of Man is on his glorious throne. All the nations are before him. And Jesus, as he tells the story, is this, that the Son of Man is going to separate the sheep from the goats. And here's what he says to the sheep. You gave me food. You gave me something to drink. You gave your home and welcomed me in. You gave me clothes. You gave me your time and visited me when I was sick. You gave me your schedule and came to me when I was in prison. You so loved that you gave. And that's just like me. Sheep, enter into your rest. You see, when you give to the least of these, you're actually giving to me. So, who are the least of these among us? I would challenge you to do what I did this week, and that is to make a list of the uns that exist in our world. Here's a few to get you started. The unfed, the unprotected, the unhealthy, the unborn, the unliked, the unhoused. All you have to do is begin making a list of the uns around us and then just say, God, one of these is going to stir your heart more than others. One of these is going to have a path for you that you say, I don't know about the rest of these, but I know I can act on this one right here. Do, do it. Go and take a step in that direction. If you read the Gospels, if you read the Bible top to bottom, starting in Genesis and go all the way through to Revelation, you will see three categories of uns that unmistakably show up time and time and time again. I've put the biblical word in parentheses so that you don't miss it. But it's the unwed, that's the widow. It's the unfamilied, not sure if that's a word, that's the orphan. And it's the un-American, that's the foreigner. The widow, the orphan, and the foreigner, through the whole Bible, get first place in line. Because they are the most Vulnerable among us. So, take what is in your hand and share with them. You know, this is often going to seem so ordinary that you won't even really know that you're giving to Jesus what he wants. What do the righteous say? They say, but when? When, Lord? When do we do these things? 
It was so ordinary to just open their home to a stranger. It was so ordinary just to say, well, if they're hungry and I have extra food, why on earth wouldn't I share with them that they didn't know that they were doing some big, heroic, change-the-world act? Isn't that a lot like following Jesus? You just do what he prompts you. You have fresh eyes to see needs that you didn't have before he was in your life, and you just meet them. No need for trumpets, no need for a program, no need for a little comment card to see how you did. You just do it. Just enter in and meet common everyday needs. So if the what is known, how do we give? Let me take you to another scene for a moment. And Jesus is teaching on a hillside. And the disciples have a plan of how to help the situation. Great conference! Great teaching, Jesus. Now, we're just going to send these people away so they can go get something to eat. Wish we had planned ahead and had some food services, but we don't. So the disciples' plan is what? Send the needy away. Go somewhere else. Jesus unloads a world of truth on him when he says these words. They do not need to go away. You feed them. They don't need to go anywhere else. You feed them. Here's the kicker. The resources of heaven, hear this. The resources of heaven do not fall from the sky. They are released through God's people. The resources of heaven do not fall from the sky. They are released through God's people. God creates miracles. He changes the world through the resources that you and I already hold in our hands. So what happens next? The disciples bring something that seems exceedingly ordinary and entirely insufficient. It's five loaves and two fish. What do they do? They bring it to Jesus. That's a good first step. What does Jesus do? Catch this. He blesses it, and then this is the most critical part. He gives it back to them. Why? Because he's not there to do this miracle that once he leaves can't be done. He's instilling something. He says, you do it. I'll take what meager you have to offer. I'll take all the reasons you think that's not enough. Let me bless it. I'm going to give it back to you. So he gives it back to the disciples, and what happens? The world has changed, and we're still talking about it today. Through the simple, ordinary act of meeting the need of a simple meal. So the miracle takes place through the hands of ordinary followers of Jesus. Our willingness to distribute what is already in our hands can literally mean life and death for hundreds, if not thousands of people. Our willingness to distribute what we already possess means life or death for people. Just listen to 2 Corinthians 9.6. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, listen to this, you may abound in every good work. 
As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. So how do we do it? We open up our hands. Secondly, we give in the name of Jesus. I open with a passage that said that it really matters how you give more, not just that you give more. And I open with that passage, and what we saw was this. There were many who did a lot of wowie kinds of works, but they were counted as lawless people. Why? Because they didn't know Jesus. It was all centered on relationship. They weren't known by Jesus. So how do we give in Jesus' name? It's all about relationship. I have a friend named Monica. Monica works at Facebook. She also works with us with Foster the Bay. And on her 10-year anniversary, you'll never guess what they call it at Facebook. They call it a face-aversary. They gave her money. They gave money to Foster the Bay in her name. What I absolutely love about that gift is this. They knew enough about Monica to know that that was what was on her wish list. They knew enough about Monica to say, how could we really put a smile on her face? I know we'll give to what she seems to care about the most. So here is a company that, from my vantage point, doesn't appear to be in line with Christian ideals and isn't trying to advance the kingdom of Jesus on earth. That's not what they're about. Here they are giving a gift in Monica's name. Here's my challenge, church. Give like that. Know enough about Jesus that when you give, you just know, yep, this is, this is going to put a smile on Jesus' face. Doesn't mean every single time that you offer a bottle of water, you have to say, by the way, this is in Jesus' name. In fact, that might be destructive to constantly badger people with that. But to give in such a way that his name is joyfully attached to it is our goal. Let me pray. God, we just celebrate life this morning. God, we take air into our lungs. We blink our eyes. We have our heart beating blood through our bodies. And God, we just rejoice that you gifted that to us today. God, I pray that we wouldn't grow complacent in that. God, guard our hearts and our minds from entitlement. Of course we should have extra resources. God, I pray that you would steer our actions, steer our hearts. I pray, God, that even as smaller groups, as community groups, we would dream up ways to celebrate and honor you in this season. God, I thank you for the incredible things going on in our church. I thank you, God, for the stories that no one else is privy to except you and the giver in the spirit of not letting their left hand know what their right hand's doing, God, they just give and serve. God, I celebrate in 2017 people who stepped out of ministry at this church to give in a more significant way to those who are part of the unlist. We praise you for that, God. 
We praise you as a church that we can sacrifice around our facility, sacrifice in staff dollars, sacrifice in some different programs that might be stirred up here that would benefit us, that would be great to have, and we sacrifice it for the purpose of giving more. God, I pray that just now, even as we sing, that the words of this song would prompt us to change, It would prompt us to grow. God, help us to take seriously what we just read, that we can abound in every good work. We say freely, God, that we have not arrived. We long to be closer to you, more amazed by you, and walking on deeper water next year than this year because we've stayed close to you. In Jesus' name, amen.